Blog Talk Radio. Driving all night, my hands wet on the wheel. It's talking in circles. There's a voice in my head that drives my heel. With your host, Clayton Caldwell. My baby calling till I need you here. And John Harlow. And it's a half past four and I'm shifting gear. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Talking in Circles. I am Clayton Caldwell with my co-host from SpeedwayMedia.com, John Harlow. Today we will break down the STP 500 for the Martinsville Speedway. This is Brad Kowalski's 23rd career victory. Then we will talk about uh, the point system. Who should be? Who's in trouble? Who should be worried? Also, ISC ticket sales are down. Advanced ticket sales for Richmond, Talladega, and Kansas are down 7%. TV ratings. Lo- Multi-year low continues for NASCAR in the Cup Series, but they were up for the Truck Series race. Very interesting. We'll dive into why. Also, Sam R., a legendary NASCAR driver, uh, two-time Xfinity Series champion, passed away this weekend. We'll discuss his career. And charters. Uh, news coming out this week about a little bit more information about charters, how much they're worth, uh, and whether or not they're worth it. Also, we'll preview Texas Motor Speedway. We'll preview... Um, the O'Reilly Auto Parts 500 from Texas Motor Speedway. New configuration, new pavement. What does this mean for the show on Sunday? We'll dive into all of it here. And we'll take your phone calls, 917-889-8280, to join the conversation on Talking Circles. But like I said, John, it was Brad Kozlowski's 23rd career victory, his first win at Martinsville, Team Penske's first win since Rusty Wallace in 2004, and Ford's first win at Martinsville since 2002. Uh, crazy day. There, you know, Kyle Busch looked like he had it in hand. We'll dive into uh, a couple of incidents, incidences that happened with him. But Brad Kozlowski really had a strong car there that last that last segment and was able to pull away the victory. Um, right now, it looks like that two team is clicking on all cylinders. Yeah, it was a great run. Uh, I think that last segment, the racing between Brad Kozlowski and Kyle Busch was phenomenal. I mean, they were bumper to bumper, uh, swapping the lead back and forth. Um, and the one thing that was really great about the racing at Martinsville this weekend, you could pass on the outside. Normally, if you are not hugging the curb, you might as well just figure you're going from second to 14th place because everybody in a straight line is going to go past you. But you were able to hold yourself and stay with the leader on the outside. I mean, Kyle and Brad, they had some great racing going on for the lead in that final segment. That two-car, I mean – it was a smart move on Roger Penske to appeal the suspension of Paul Wolf for this race because Martinsville has been a place where Brad's been okay. He hasn't been special, but they had, they figured they had something that they could pull off there. California, they figured they were okay with whenever at auto club speedway, but they wanted Paul Wolf back on the pit box for this race. And it worked out well, good strategy, good moves. The car was great all day. Him and Kyle Busch, ran great. Kyle Busch had a bad set of tires that he didn't like. And then he had his little run in with Ricky Stenhouse at the end of the second segment. But overall, I think it was one of the better Martinsville races we've had in a long time. Oh, I agree with you. I think um, the outside lane coming in was huge for, for Martinsville this week. No doubt about it. I think something interesting, John, that you touched on here is that they appealed the penalty to that two team. Think about the races coming up. I don't know if the penalty will be heard before Texas, but Texas is a chase race. But the three races after that, you got Bristol and Richmond, the two races after that. It will definitely be heard by the time we get to Bristol and Richmond. 
Neither one of those races are in the chase. Yeah, Richmond's the final race of the regular season. Because last year's not going to need to win that. So to have your regular crew chief back for Martinsville and maybe even even Texas Motor Speedway, two races that are in the chase, sort of a preview for the chase, is huge for Kozlowski. So I wonder if that had a lot to do with anything to do with them appealing the penalty this week, deciding to do it this week when they didn't do it last week in California, which, again, is not a chase track. Um, you, know, you look at the rundown here, John, quick. Uh, like we mentioned Kyle Busch. A, a tough day for him as far as he led the most laps, 274 laps led, finishing in the second spot. Right now, Joe Gibbs Racing doesn't look like they are where they need to be right now as far as champ- in championship form. Uh, because, but Kyle Busch has shown some, some decent runs at Las Vegas. And here at Martinsville, a tough day for him on Sunday, no doubt about it, John. Also, another solid day for Chase Elliott. Uh, you know, didn't lead a ton of laps, won the truck race there on Saturday. But uh, another solid day for Chase Elliott. Just keeps riding off those top five finishes. Eventually, he's got to find Victor Lane, don't you think? I think Chase Elliott has been the class, class of the field for Hendrick Motorsports. I mean, they're running better than they're finishing. At least Dale Jr. and Jimmy Johnson are. But there's still something that's just not there with those two teams. The 24 team has been the class of the field when it comes to Hendrick Motorsports this year. And Chase has been challenging for wins in every race this season. So I think Chase is going to get a win sooner or later. I mean, just like we kept saying about Kyle Larson his rookie year, we expected him to get a win. We expected him to get a win. And it didn't happen until late in his second year. And Kyle Larson is now the points leader. He's the guy who everybody's chasing after right now, and he's run great all season long. I think Chase Elliott's been right there with him all year, and there will be a win that will come. You run up front far enough, fast enough, and often enough, sooner or later the break's going to go your way. And, and we talked about it earlier last week on our show last week. I think there's four teams right now, John, who are pretty much going out and dominating uh, this season. You know, one of the teams is the two-team of Kozlowski. I think uh, 24 cars should be included in that, as well as the 78 and the 42. Those four teams have really been the teams that have sort of distanced themselves from the rest of the field as far as speed is concerned. You know, the 42 had some trouble this weekend. I think, you know, being a young driver still at Martinsville, uh, kind of bit the 42 this weekend. 24 ran strong. The two was good. 78 had, had a little incident as well. But uh, nothing to be alarmed, I don't think, as far as the 42 to 78 go. Um, but a, a couple of other solid runs before we get to the people, sort of more interesting stuff in this race. I thought RCR performed pretty well. Austin Dillon was up in the top five for most of the race. Did a great job. He finished fifth. And you look at the teams they have alliance with, JTG Daughtery Racing, AJ Allmendinger comes to Martinsville every week, every time he comes to Martinsville, it seems like, and he runs up front every time. Finished sixth this weekend. His teammate Chris Busher finished in the 11th spot. A very good run for JTG Daughtery Racing, which they really needed. They had a, they've had a tough start to the year. I think two teams has been a little bit more of a burden than what they've expected. So a tough start to their year, but a, a good solid run for a couple of RCR teams there, uh, RCR-affiliated teams there at Martinsville. I think one of the things with A.J. Allmendinger and his sixth-place finish to me is a win because of that 35-point penalty he had for the three loose lug nuts. He started 30th. I mean, you take add those 35 points back in, the Dinger's close to, would have be, could, close to being in the chase. So, I mean, he's run respectable throughout the season. He just had that one penalty that bit him in the butt. Chris Busher, I'm surprised he finished the race because I think if him and Danica would have stayed together for another lap or two, one or both of them would have been in the wall because they were banging and 
trying to knock each other out for about a 10-lap stretch, stretch there. I think Busher is growing with that team. That's something they're going to get used to. But I don't think they're as bad off as the points seem when it comes to um, Dinger and um, Busher because Dinger's got that 35-point penalty that's killing him. Busher yeah. has struggled, but he's improving as the season goes on. I mean, he's in his second year, second manufacturer, second crew chief, second team. And he doesn't even really belong to either of those teams. He actually belongs to Roush Fenway. He was loaned out the front row last year, loaned out to JT Jordy this year. I wonder what's going to happen when he actually gets into Roush equipment. Yeah, he has to wonder. And uh, it was nice to see those teams run really good because they need, I think they both of them points-wise really needed it. And, uh, again, uh, more of a, a driver's racetrack, more of a, a racetrack where uh, the bigger teams sort of don't have a, a stranglehold on it as much as they do on the mile and a half. So we'll see what they do next weekend at Texas. But uh, another solid day at, for Roush Fenton Racing. Um, Ricky Senos Jr. in top 10, top 15 all day. So did Trevor Bain. Stenhouse finished 10th. Bain finished 13th. But the story of the day for Stenhouse, I think, John, was at the end of the second st- segment when Kyle Busch was leading um, and it looked like he was going to win the segment and, and get that playoff point. And Stenhouse bumped him out of the way to stay on the lead lap. Stenhouse was was, lap, was first car one lap down. Uh, Bush was caught up in lap traffic. Stenhouse bumped him out of the way. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who were kind of didn't know how to feel about that because yeah, Martinsville's a track where you use your bumper and you can you can kind of get away with that stuff. But that's the leader of the race. What were your thoughts on that? Was that sort of Bush league by Ricky Stenhouse Jr.? I think that was great racing on Ricky Stenhouse Jr.'s part because I mean he didn't put Kyle in a wall now if he would have bumped him and put him in the wall that's a different thing but what Stenhouse did he's and he sees Kyle Busch coming up on those lap cars and if Kyle gets a good run off of four he might have got one of them and Stenhouse would have been the second car getting your lap back on a lucky dog isn't as beneficial as it seems it's not like you get to start 22nd in line you're starting 38th in line so you're behind all the lap cars. You're the last car on the lead lap. You get waved around, but you're at the back of the field. And within 15 laps, that leader's right back on your butt again. So Stenhouse was doing everything he could to preserve his day and get the best possible result he could. And I think it was great racing on his part. I thought it was typical Martinsville racing on his part. Uh, the Brian France term of quintessential NASCAR. I think that was quintessential NASCAR. <laughs> That was knock your knock your guy a little bit out of the way. Don't wreck him. Use your bumper. Get him loose. Get by him. He didn't expect – I mean, I don't think Kyle Busch saw Chase Elliott that close and him getting by the way he did. But, I mean, it was smart racing on Stenhouse's part, and he would have never seen the top ten if he would have been the last car or, I mean, the first last first car on the lead uh, – the last car on the lead lap starting at the back of the field because Kyle Busch probably would have got to him within 15 laps. You're right, John. And, and Martinsville, the track, uh, with how short it is and how, you know, sort of everybody's running the same speed there, uh, track position is huge. And that's a very good point. You know, when you are the lucky dog, like you said, uh, you start at the rear of the field every time. Where if you're not the lucky dog, you start in a position where, uh, at least on the left, you start in a position where you're supposed to, um, you know, where you're running. So that was a huge, absolutely a huge move for Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Uh, and, and listen, he could pit with the leaders then and, um, even gain some spots on pit road if he had to. 
So yeah, it was it was a good move. I thought it was a smart move. It's one of those moves where though, you know, it's sort of that that thing that happens in racing where you don't really notice when when rules are instituted, you don't really think about how they're going to impact fully. And I think when we talk about a short track racing at Martinsville, if it wasn't for the stages, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. doesn't make that move because he doesn't know when the caution is going to fly. Uh, so that's what made that, I think, even more interesting was the fact that you don't know when the caution is normally going to fly if it wasn't for the stages. So he knew right there, okay, caution is definitely coming out here. I better get my lap back right now. And he did. So, uh, you know, I think a smart move by Stenhouse, like you said, he didn't totally wreck him. Uh, I do think Kyle deserves, if, if, he, if he wants payback, if he's upset about losing that point, I think there's certainly some payback. You know, not, not totally wrecking a guy, but if he wants to bump him out of the way, run him a little harder uh next couple of weeks, I'm okay with that. But I think Stenhouse will take that over the alternative, like you said. Um, a couple of guys had, had really poor days at Martinsville, John. I just want to get your opinion on it. Should they be worried? Two guys in particular. I mean, McMurray wrecked. He had a... Uh, you know, he's up there in the point standings. Uh, Chip Ganassi racing is really good. Uh, he had a, you know, blown tire, hit the outside wall. I, I'm not concerned about him, but these next two drivers I'm, I'm a little concerned about. Kurt Busch finished in the 38th spot. Another tough weekend. It seems like since the Daytona 500, this 41 team, I don't know if they're testing or if they're trying to figure out stuff, they've been, they've been having a heck of a season since the Daytona 500. Uh, and I'm a big believer in momentum and building momentum. And I, that 41 team's lost a lot of momentum since Daytona. Also, Dale Earnhardt Jr. This is a weekend where Dale Jr. is supposed to come in and really, really have a solid weekend at Martinsville, one of his best racetracks. He speeds on pit road, gets him way back in, in, in traffic. Uh, a wreck happens in front of him. He can't slow down, gets involved in a wreck, and ends up 34th. Are you at all concerned about Kurt Busch and Dale Earnhardt Jr. six races into the season? Kurt Busch, no, because he's locked in. I think they'll find their way around it. I think there's some growing pains of going to Ford. I think there's also some growing pains of trying to make sure the 14 car comes back to life. Because you notice Kevin Harvick isn't running the way Kevin Harvick normally runs either. I mean, he was a 20th place car all day long. I think there's a lot of work going into that 14 car to try to make sure they get all three of them solidly together in Ford. I think there's some growing pains of switching from Chevy to Ford. They came out of the box really strong, but they've had some struggles since they came out of the box really strong. And I think part of it's getting, not having the notebook of what Fords do, how the body configurations work. I think there's a lot of things they're relying with Penske's help and Ford engineering help. But I mean, there's some big differences between the Ford Fusion and the Chevy SS. Chassis, a lot of them are basically the same, but with a few adjustments to make the um, where the engine fits in, the difference between a Roush Yates engine and a Hendrick engine. But I think some of it is trying to get that 14 to where it's strong. Clint Boyer ran, rel- he ran really good again, and I think they're starting to feel comfortable that the 14 team with Boyer and Bogoravich is going to be a solid contender throughout the season. I think the focus will go back to getting Roddy Childers and Kevin Hart back to the way they usually are. But right now, Kurt Busch is locked in. I mean, all they got to do is stay in the top 30 and they're locked into the chase unless we get a boatload of, I mean, unless we have 18 winners or something. But I don't have a problem. I think Tony Gibson has been around long enough. He knows how to work his driver. Kurt Busch knows what he's doing. I think there's some things where it's like they're just pushing the envelope I mean, you saw the like I said a couple a couple weeks ago they went through six batteries, 
That never happens. And Kurt no. Busch got caught up in one of those accidents again. That's why he was out. He was running decent. I mean, he had a 15th to 20th place car. But that whenever one of those accordion accidents happened at Martinsville, I mean, you get knocked out. And he wound up getting a tire cut. They wound up fixing it up and getting back out there. And then two laps later, cut a tire. So they made it through the five-minute clock. But if you come out after the five-minute clock and you cause the next caution, thanks for playing. Pack up. You're going home. I mean, it just wasn't the greatest day, but they were they were running okay. Dale Jr., with the speeding penalty, got him put in a box again. He was back in that accordion crash as well, but he was passing cars throughout the day. He had more life in his car and his team this week than we've seen out of Dale Jr. most of the season, except for Daytona. Well, I agree with that. I think, uh, like I said, Martinsville's one of those racetracks. Dale seems to have that place figured out. Uh, a lot more than other racetracks at 88 team does at least. And, uh, you know, he, he had def- definitely had good speed all day, but you can't speed on pit road there. And I know he, he did that, and, and he's a human, and, he, and he's allowed to make mistakes there. But uh, this is six weeks in a row. This is the first time in his career he's gone the first six weeks of a season without a top ten finish. And you just have to wonder, with the new points, the way you reward the regular season champion, um, and the fact that he, they haven't got a whole lot of bonus points in the chase in the um, through stages anyway, you know they haven't won a stage yet. They haven't, you know, those are all playoff points that are going to add up when we get after Richmond. And Junior hasn't done that yet. And yes, I don't have the motorsports is down. We'll touch on his teammate a little, a little bit, his engine or his shop mate, in a little bit uh, as well. But um, I, I think I am a little concerned just because, like I said earlier, Hendrick Motorsports is not where they are, where they need to be right now. I don't think Joe Gibbs Racing is, and I don't think Hendrick Motorsports is. You know, you see Chase Elliott, that 24 car is running really, really good, but the 48 and the 88 have really struggled out of the box in the first six races. They're, I think they're searching for speed. Um, and you look at Jimmy Johnson, we'll talk about him, John. Uh, usually this is one of the racetracks where Jimmy comes out and dominates. You know, one practice, or one qualifying. They didn't get a chance to qualify this weekend. I understand that, but a 15th place finish at a track where he normally runs good, and he was in the top 10 most of the day. Pitch strategy sort of got him to the rear, but man, that's a little bit disappointing as well for Jimmy Johnson. So I think Hendrick Motorsports is down a little bit. I think so as well. I mean, part of the thing with Johnson, they were kind of put behind the eight ball because of how poorly they've been running this season. And the starting lineup being set by points, they had to go through the field more than they're used to at Martinsville. He had a good car. He was coming through the field. He had some issues, though. And, I mean, Jimmy Johnson, that's one of the weirdest things I ever saw. Jimmy Johnson usually isn't the pinball machine at Martinsville. And Jimmy Johnson was getting bounced. He bounced off. If he didn't hit seven or eight different cars throughout the day or seven or eight cars didn't hit him, I'm surprised. I mean, Jimmy Johnson was a pinball on that short track on uh, Sunday afternoon. It's different for, than I think he's ever been used to. The fact that they finished 15th was a good day for them, considering how much damage they could have had with the amount of cars that they bounced off of and how many times he could have cut a tire, or how many times um, those bumps could have turned into hitting the wall or something. I think it was a good day for Johnson, but I don't think Hendrick Motorsports is right there. The only team I see running really well from Hendrick Motorsports is Chase Elliott, and I think Chase running the truck race on Saturday helped him out a heck of a lot on Sunday. It gave him confidence. He knew his way around the track. It also gave him uh, the notes and an idea of how the tire worked. 
So whenever they ran Sunday, he knew where the right spot was. And he also knew going into Sunday that you had a shot at holding the outside line because they were using the outside line as well in the truck race on Saturday. So I think Chase running that truck race Saturday benefited him like crazy on Sunday. I agree, John, wholeheartedly. I'm surprised we don't see more young drivers play some Martinsville and do that because I think it's so essential that they go and figure out how to run this place because this place is unlike anything we've ever seen before. We saw Daniel Suarez this weekend, uh, a, a driver who is, you know, I think a very talented young driver who has, you know, won an Xfinity Series championship, has, has a great resume, come out to Martinsville this weekend and tear up two race cars, one in practice and then one in the race and absolutely tore him up and it hurt him this weekend. And I just, you know, I know he's been to Martinsville in the past, but this place is unlike any other racetrack we go to. And if you can get that rhythm and figure it out, I'm surprised we didn't see Suarez in a, in a Kyle Busch Motorsports truck this weekend. Our Joe Gibbs Racing figure out a way to get him in a Toyota truck this weekend. Um, because I think that would have been essential for his career, for his race this weekend at Martinsville. Like we saw with Chase Elliott, even if you do wreck 200 laps into the race, you got 200 laps under your belt. And I'll tell you, the tire was fantastic. And I usually, we, you know, the first ones to come out, that was me, come out and uh, sort of lend base Goodyear when, when things don't go right. But they built an outstanding tire this weekend that, that wear, uh, was perfect on wear. And like you said, the outside lane, it was great to see because you weren't, it wasn't even, I don't even know if it was that you could pass on the outside lane, but you weren't a dead duck in the outside lane. Like usually when we see restarts out there, uh, you know, you're a dead duck if you're starting the outside lane and you get out there for 20 laps, you could lose eight spots by just being stuck in the, restarting on the outside lane. That wasn't the issue this weekend at Martinsville, which I really, really like because, to me, that kind of negates passing. That kind of negates, you know, somebody's working their way up through the field and they get stuck in the outside lane and they lose eight spots. Well, that hurts the show a little bit. But if you can sort of hang with the team and hang with, with the drivers, hang with the guy like we saw at Martinsville, this weekend and hanging that outside lane, I think it makes a, a lot better show. So, absolutely, I think um, it was something that was refreshing to see that outside lane come in. Uh, your final thoughts on Martinsville, John, before we move on? I think it was one of the better Martinsville races we've had in a long time because the tire did allow them to not become a boat anchor going through the outside lane. Um it was nice to see some of the smaller teams like JTG, JTG Doherty run well. It was nice to see the uh, Roush Fenway teams be competitive. I mean, they weren't pushing for the win, but they were staying on the lead lap and they were pushing for top tens. And it was very surprising to see Harvick, uh, Kurt Busch, Jimmy Johnson, uh, Dale Jr. all run as poorly as they did. Agree, and it's been a weird year that way where we've seen these sort of these big name veteran race car drivers. Even Matt Kenseth, I mean, Kenseth finished ninth this weekend. Um, not known for his, you know, greatness at Martinsville per se, but uh, he finished ninth, and that's a, a good point state for him. You can say, well, why does he need points? I just think he needed to stop the bleeding. He's had a hor- horrible luck this year, wrecked twice. You know, and he's had some really bad luck. So to come out and finish ninth, yeah, it wasn't, you know, you saw him sort of. Um, where he could have put himself into a situation where he might have made it two or three wide in the corner, he sort of backed down because he knew he needed a good finish. He was able to get that good finish from Matt Kenseth. Um, but the veterans haven't really performed like we've expected this year. I consider Kozlowski a young guy, younger guy. Uh, Harvick's a veteran. We haven't really seen him. Jimmy Johnson hasn't come to light yet. Like I said, Kenseth, Dale Jr., we haven't really seen them sort of hit their stride yet. 
Will we see that happen in 2017? I don't know. Is there a changing of the guard here in 2017? I think that's something to keep an eye on as the season goes along. Uh, an article this weekend on CBS, NBC Sports excuse me, was very interesting. It was about International Speedway Corporation. Dustin Long wrote it yet, yesterday um, that attendance was down by about 7% on average for cup events at Phoenix, Auto Club Speedway, and Martinsville. Also, um, advanced ticket sales for NASCAR Cup events and ISC tracks in the second quarter at Richmond, Talladega, and Kansas are down 7%. Um, but they also said they've seen an uptick a little bit in the 18 to 34 demographic. What do you make of all these numbers, John? Um, are you concerned at all about the attendance going down, or do you think uh, people are just staying home more to watch it on TV? Well, I'm not staying home to watch it on TV because TV ratings are down. Um, I'm concerned their hat's on and they're spending the money on, but the numbers aren't there to get another TV contract like this. They don't have the sponsorship out of, like they the money coming out of, like they had out of Sprint for Monster Energy. The racing has been okay. It hasn't been great. And that's one of the things that is probably causing a lot of this. I mean, in reality, you go to the race on Sunday, you've got your three-and-a-half-hour show, which is okay. I mean, the show's been okay. It hasn't been spectacular. It hasn't been lights out. There's been times where you've seen drivers with seven-and-a-half-second leads on the intermediate tracks in each stage. But the racing's been okay. There's nothing spectacular that's going to draw the fans to the track. One of the things that they're running into, they have an identity crisis. If you remember growing up, you were a Bill Elliott fan. You were a Daryl Waltrip fan. You were a Richard Petty fan. You were a David Pearson fan. You were an Earnhardt fan. You were a Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart. Right now, the big known names are Kevin Harvick, Jimmy Johnson, Kenseth on some, some note, but Kenseth has never been that household name, and Dale Jr., Everybody else is a young and up-and-comer or a milk-toast, middle-of-the-pack guy who hasn't really been a spotlight person. They're going to have to bank on the Kyle Larsons, the Chase Elliotts, the Eric Jones to make a name for themselves pretty fast because the Kenseths, the, Ern- I mean, the Dale Juniors, the Jimmy Johnsons, the Kevin Harvicks, they may have four or five more years left in them. And then they're going to really have to have the changing of the guard. I think by the time the next TV contract rolls around, NASCAR could be in big trouble. And if you're not putting butts in the seats and you're not putting people in front of the TVs, you're in trouble. Nine one seven eight eight nine eight two eight zero. If you want to join the conversation here on Talking Circles, uh, you know the only positive sign you saw was uh, an uptick, definitely in the eighteen to thirty-four demographic. I think that's something that uh, NASCAR has really struggled with in the past couple of years. But here's my take on this, John. And, and there's a, a middle of this article about the average ticket price for a cup event during the first quarter. It increased 3.5% to $165. That's an average ticket price. Now, included in that is the Daytona 500, which obviously you would expect Super Bowl stock car racing to have extremely high ticket prices. I understand that. So the average will be a little bit higher than expected. But to me, that's going to be about $30 more than what we expect. So a $130 ticket for a race is a little steep, John. I'm sorry for an ISC race. And you can say what you want, um, but it's a little steep. 
And I think that's something NASCAR needs to look at. I think right now what what I see, how they're playing it is, well, we're going to tear down more seats, but we're going to charge more for the tickets because this way we kind of, you know, we don't feel the impact as much financially if we would and we kept the tickets down and we'll just keep, you know, the TV money coming in where they, you know, people watching it on TV and stuff like that. But I just think a lot of these people come out and say, well, NASCAR ticket prices are, are on par with, what we see in Major League Baseball games, what we see in National Football League games, that is not correct. I'm sorry. That you know, if you've got a, an average ticket price for $165, and again, a little steep because of the Daytona 500, but if that's your average average ticket price, that's nowhere near an an average NFL team. Maybe a team that is extremely good and extremely popular in market, yes. Nowhere near a Major League Baseball team, nowhere near a basketball team, and nowhere near a hockey team. So that myth, as far as they're on par with other sports, as far as ticket prices are concerned is totally wrong. So I was surprised to see that the ISC was up 3%. What do you make of that? Well, I live in one of the hottest markets for sports right now. I mean, the Red Sox are the Red Sox. They won the division last year. The Patriots, I mean, five Super Bowl champs. Upper deck seats in Gillette Stadium are 90 bucks. The field level seats are in the three dollars $400 range, but 90 bucks for the upper deck. And you can see everything plain as day in the upper deck. It's not like you're needing binoculars to see the game. At Fenway, you can get a good seat at Fenway Park for 65 bucks. Now, granted, you'll pay as much to park at Fenway Park, but that's a whole different thing. A Celtics game, I can get mid-level seats for 55 bucks. And a Bruins game is probably about 70, 75. And so, I mean, I'm in a market where I have four playoff teams right there. And they play – I mean, baseball has 81 home games a year. I have 81 opportunities to see the Red Sox. At a NASCAR track, there's 36 races during the week. Football has – I mean, they're the smartest way. They have eight home games. They can afford to charge you more. And they don't compare to the – I mean, the average price at Gillette Stadium is probably about two two fifty, But – you got eight shots at seeing them. NASCAR's on every week. I mean, their season right. goes from February to almost Thanksgiving, so it's on all year. And I think it's almost too much of a good thing. They don't – I mean, they have too much uh, going on. And on the Sunday, all you get is a race. There's really nothing great that goes with it, at least for the Patriots games. You have the ability to tailgate. You've got a – a mall complex right around it. So there's so many different things you can do around the game that it makes it, it makes it an event. NASCAR is the event has wore off of it. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I think, you know, when you look at, and I think you're in a market where that is very rare that the prices is that high, because like you said, the Patriots are to me, an, the elite team in the NFL in an elite market, like in Boston, the Boston area. Uh, you know, and the Giants are the same way with New York, where, where I live, in that market where, you know, Giants tickets are very high. But I think if you go to, like, Tennessee, the Titans aren't nearly that high. Or if you go to Kansas City, maybe maybe they're – it's not every every stadium. And you have to – and I know that the racetracks are spread out all over the country. So you say 36 weeks, you're right on that. But, um, you know, you only go to the Pocono market twice a year. You only go to the Dover market twice a year. But Dover and Pocono are sort of the same market. And I think, you know, I touched on this, you know, when we talk about New Hampshire, I thought New Hampshire races were sort of too close together. Um, I think Pocono races are too close together. 
And I think when you dive into these people's pockets twice in, in a month and a half for $165 a pop, that's a lot of money. And, and you know, if you're a family of four, that's a $500, $600 day just in ticket prices alone, not including the hotel fees, not including food and drink, not including the travel to get there. So I think that's a big-time uh, upkeep. And I think that could be why we're seeing a decline in attendance, absolutely. Uh, you know, NASCAR obviously – they're business people. They know how to run their business. ISC does. But it sort of ties into my next point here, John, where, you know, we see TV ratings. And, and the TV ratings for this weekend at Martinsville Speedway for the Cup race was 2.11 overnight, uh, off of 5% from last year's race, which is 2.23. Uh, this weekend's race was the first race this season on FS1. All the other race, five races previous were all on Fox. We saw a decline on Fox this weekend, but definitely we, I think we all anticipated this race being on FS1. We were going to see a de- major decline in ratings, and we did. But something I found interesting, John, was the truck race was on Saturday on Fox and was the highest truck race, highest rated truck race in five years. That just shows you the difference to me, John, between a national audience and an FS1 audience. What do you, what's your take on that? Again, I don't know what channel FS1 is at my house. I have to search and search. And if I, I mean, there's people, if you have to search for it, they don't bother. And granted, these networks paid a lot of money and they're trying to build their cable sports network to try to take on the worldwide leader. And they're using NASCAR to help build it. But the product isn't what it was five years ago. And the attendance isn't what it was five years ago. And Whenever you're showing video, the, I mean, you're showing the crowd because you can only focus in so tight, but you're going to get some crowd shots. And when you see a crowd shot of a half-empty track, it's like, well, if they don't bother to show up for the race, why should I bother to tune in? And again, there's not the name star power that was there. The one thing with the truck race, the tr- people who love NASCAR actually really like the trucks. And truck racing for television is really, really good. And the difference between Fox and FS1 is a whole different world. I mean, FS1, the Martinsville race, was competing against opening day of baseball. On Saturday, the truck race was competing against nothing because the NCAA basketball tournament didn't start till after the truck race was over. So mm-hmm. it's two different things. The audience at Fox Sports 1 is not what the audience of Fox is, and people are too lazy to go looking for it. Yeah, listen, I think uh, that's a big thing as far as what you talked about with Major League Baseball opening day. Now, how much did Major League Baseball pull in, you know, in the North Carolina market? Who knows? But, you know, and I don't mean this as a as a uh, insult to the, to the core NASCAR fans, but I'm going to be honest here. And when you think about the core NASCAR fan, you think about the guy who, uh, you know, the average Joe who's working for a living, who doesn't make a ton of money, who, uh, you know, a good Sunday, you know, a a fun Sunday for them is to sit back, open a few beers, and watch NASCAR race. And, again, I hope this doesn't seem like I'm degrading these people, but um, to me, they're not going to pay the money to have FS1, the core NASCAR fan, because they don't have the money to do that. Where if you put it on a free network like Fox, where it's generally free throughout the country, they're going to watch it because, hey, it's free. I don't have to pay extra for it. FS1 is that extra cost. So I have to, you know, I would love to see 
what I would love to see is the, the, the core, you know, North Carolina fans where you say, hey, where were the, what were the ratings in North Carolina this weekend compared to last weekend? And is that, I think that's something NASCAR sort of needs to take into consideration when they sign these TV deals. Yeah, the money is great. I mean, I'm sure they looked at that when Fox came with that and NBC Sports came with their money that they, they sent them, and they saw the billions and billions of dollars they were offering them to put on their sports network. NASCAR jumped at the opportunity. But you also have to sit there and say, is that in, quote-unquote, the best interest of the sport? Because now you've lost Sprint, and you're replacing them with a sponsor and monster who, to, according to all reports, is paying way less than what Sprint paid. And I think a lot of that was to do with the ratings being low and the attendance being low, where if you could keep those ratings up a little bit by having the national audience watching your races 36 weekends out of the year on national television, but you take a price cut at the end of that where it might not be uh, $1.8 billion, it might only be $1.2 billion, but it might be worth it in the long run. That's where I think NASCAR needs to sort of maybe consider this where, hey, yeah, the money is great right now, but let's talk about the best interest of the sport for a second. Is it the best interest of the, to have these races on FS1, to have these races on NBC Sports Network? Because, John, I think NBC Sports Network might even be lower as far as people watching than, than FS1. And the majority of the races in the second half of the year are on NBC Sports Network. NBC, I think, only has about three or four races on NBC themselves. Uh, so... You know, I think it's a major problem that a lot of people are kind of brushing underneath here as far as national TV and not national TV. Fox is, I think, a little bit better, like I said, because they show a lot more races on it, on national television. But, man, oh, man, I don't know. I just think unless these prices come way down on Fox, F- on FS1 or NBC Sports Network, these people will be core NASCAR fanning paying for it. The other part of it is I think the later start times – hurts the core NASCAR fan as well. I'm used to, I mean, I'm a creature of habit. I'm 50 years old. I get up in the morning, do what I need to do, and then have lunch. And usually at one o'clock, I used to be in my recliner ready for the race to start. Now you've got 220 is about when the green flag dropped at Martinsville. I've already had time to say, well, the yard needs some work, or I need to wash my car, or I need to do something around the house. And by the time I get started doing stuff around the house, the race is on and I miss the first half. Well, if I miss the first half, why bother? I can catch the highlights somewhere else and find out what happened or go to NASCAR.com later in the day and do the live leaderboard and find out where my guy is or find out who's doing what. You don't really need to watch the race to be informed. Fair point, John. And I think, you know, with Twitter and all that kind of stuff nowadays, you can, you know, in, in technology we have, you can go back and watch uh, certain highlights if you missed it at a, at you know, in an instant. Where yeah, you want to have back in the day, the '90s, you could do that on Sports Center, but you know, you kind of wanted to watch it real time. Where now you don't really have to. You can just do it when it, when you want to. So, you know, all this tech, all this stuff, I think has has a factor in the ratings. But, again, you know, the NFL ratings were down this, this year as well. Um, so we'll see if this is a trend. But, uh, you know, NASCAR, they seem concerned about it. They wouldn't have made the changes to the stages if the TV networks were, weren't were concerned about it. I think TV networks really pushed for that. 
that it's nothing, none of our concern and not to worry about it, I think it's crazy because, you know, now we're starting to see an impact, like I said, with the stages and stuff. We're starting to see an impact to races. Um, and I hope, you know, I don't want to see this sport die. I hope it's around, you know, 40 years from now and still very good and still something people, you know, watch and still very profitable. But it's getting to a point now where you start to get a little bit worried about that. Um, you know, 2.2 rating on a Sunday is not very good at all. Uh, compared to what we used to pull in, you know, fives back in the, back in the, uh, you know, when NASCAR was America's fastest growing sport, I don't know if we'll ever see those numbers again, but you certainly don't want to see a continued decline year after year, race after race, and that's what we're seeing. And I think that's a major concern. Nine one seven eight eight nine eight two eight zero here. If you want to join a conversation, I'm talking circles. Uh, something, you know, Sunday morning, John. It was a t- it was a great day in Martinsville. Like I said, we had lo- I thought the racing was great both Saturday and Sunday. But in between that, we had a little bit of sadness. Uh, Sam Ard, former two-time NASCAR Xfinity Series champion, uh, won 22 races from 1982 to 1984, 79 top tens in just 92 starts. Uh, unbelievable career in the, in those three years. Was a great sportsman driver before that, uh, but an injury forced him out of the race car towards the tail end of the 84 season, and he was never he never ran again. This is a guy who, um, you know, I first he first came to my attention around 2005. It was the local paper had a, an article on him about, you know, his head injury, how it caused uh, some some illnesses later in life. And um, I was sad because this was a guy who, you know, NASCAR don't have pension. You know, they don't have a union, so these pensions aren't there for these guys. And, you know, he was sort of struggling to, pay for his medical bills and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a really sad time. We saw Kyle Busch donate a lot of money. Tony Stewart's donated a lot of money towards his cause over the last couple of years. But he passed away this weekend, 78 years old. Uh, really, you know, it was a car owner for a little bit after that. Jeff Burton got his first career NASCAR win under Sam Mard. But a sad day Sunday morning at Martinsville Speedway for sure, John. And, John, I, I think we lost you there, John. Um, yeah, you know, a sad day. For Sam, you know, if, if you're a uh, NASCAR fan there, and if you were a fan of Sam Ard, um, you know, I, I feel awful and uh, about it. It was it was just a, you know, a guy who is one of the legends, who I don't know if he gets a rec- enough uh, recognition for what he's done in this sport. I really don't. I think he's uh, he's done a lot of great things in this sport. Um, and, and you know, listen, he, it'll be an interesting topic when the Hall of Fame comes up for him in the Xfinity series, uh, when you talked about, um, you know, whether or not he'll be in the Hall of Fame as far as Xfinity series goes, but he's a guy I think he belongs in the conversation. Uh, just real quick, John, what are your thoughts on, on, on Sam Ard? I think uh, the – best thing about Sam Ard is how he brought the NASCAR community together. Like you said, Tony Stewart donated some money. Um, Kyle Busch, whenever he tied Sam Ard's record for 10, 10 uh, wins in the Xfinity series in a year, donated a hundred thousand dollars to Sam Ard and his family and basically paid off the mortgage that they had and paid up some of the medical bills. So they weren't going to be thrown out of their house. Um, whenever his wife's car died, Kevin Harvick got him a new van to help them get around because, I mean, Sam couldn't drive anymore whenever the Alzheimer's and uh, Parkinson's kicked in. 
and he would ask his wife on a regular basis. So uh, were my parents alive when we got married? And uh, were we good parents to our kids? And can I get back in a race car? And she told him flat out, if you get back in a race car, I'll hand you the divorce papers because nobody's going to let you in a race car. And if you're dumb enough to try, I'm, I'm smart enough to get out. So it's, it was sad, but it showed the um, way the community came together. Dale Jr. and many of the other NASCAR drivers donated uh, motor racing outreach, did a, um, an auction to help out Sam's family. And that's one of the sad parts about how NASCAR drivers – do actually operate because they're independent contractors. If you're a pro football player and you play three years, you're eligible to draw a pension. If you're a major league baseball player and you play three years, you're able to draw a pension. NASCAR drivers, you get what you get and you better take good care of it while you got it because that's got to last you the rest of your life. Unless you're one of the few like Jeff Burton or Mikey or Daryl who get in the broadcast booth. But a lot of times what you do while you're racing helps you survive. And some of the guys, I mean, you look at Rick Mast, he struggled with medical stuff. He doesn't really, I mean, he hasn't had a career after the track. And some of these drivers, whenever they go, I mean, look at Dick Trickle. He wound up taking his own life because the pain was too much from all the concussions that he probably had from racing. But also he was struggling to take care of himself, struggling to take care of his family. Yeah, and and it just shows you, I think, the realness of these of these drivers, and I think that's what sort of makes you him an endearing figure when you look at it. Because, like we said, you know, when we look at baseball players, um, you know, they're they're we view them as sort of, you know, superior. And these guys certainly have talent. Sam Arn certainly could drive a race car, probably better than, uh, you know, ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, however you want to put a hundred percent of the of the rest of the population. It would have been great to watch. Um, you know, continue his career uh, if it wasn't for the injury. And, you know, he didn't have the luxury of winning a ton of cup races or winning cup championships. You know, even in the 80s, you know, you think about an Xfinity Series champion now, sure, they make a good living, but in the 80s, they probably didn't make a whole lot of money then. Uh, And as a car owner, you know, at that point, you're basically, you don't know what else to do uh, because you're a racer from the heart and you never do anything else because since you've probably been 10 years old, you've been racing. So it's, it was hard, I'm sure for him and his family, but uh, you know, like you always say, it's, it's nice to see the NASCAR community step up and, and support him and, and his family. It was great to see that. And uh, you know, he'll always be remembered. No doubt about it for what he did in the Xfinity series. I think he was, um, and again, when the Hall of Fame comes calling, I hope he gets to vote because he certainly deserves, in my opinion, if you put Jack Ingram in, Tim Arden belongs in right, right there next to him. Now I'm If you want to join the conversation on Talking Circles, a couple more topics, John. Here before we uh, before we call it a night here on Talking Circles, but uh, an interesting article again about charters. Now this has been a, a topic on our show for a while. We talk about charters. Charters is something that you know we kind of not really we're not really sure how to handle them, whether or not they are good or bad for the owners. But an average charter goes for about $2.3 million, according to an article this week. Um, and it said that Tommy Bowen Racing got $3.5 million from, uh, in the Sports Business Journal this was, $3.5 million Tommy Baldwin sold his charter for to Levine Family Racing, and BK Racing sold one of its charters to Front Row Motorsports for about $2 million. Um, 
you know, NASCAR official told the Sports Business Journal that a cost of a charter for larger teams could reach as high as $8 million, more than what Fremont Motorsports got for its charter. When you think about that, John, for a second, you know, what do those numbers mean to you? Do you did you expect, you know, for these smaller teams, that number to be a little bit higher? Do you expect that number to be a little bit higher as the charter system goes on? What are, you, what are your thoughts there um, as far as charters are concerned? Right now, I don't see a need to have a charter. I mean, you look, Martinsville, you can drive from Charlotte, North Carolina to Martinsville in a couple hours. I mean, they were talking, some of the drivers were talking about driving up in the morning before they went to the race. And there were 38 cars. There were two open slots. Somebody could have pulled up and said, okay, I want, I want in. And they're going to make some money. They're not making as much as they would with a charter, but they're making enough to pay the tire bill, pay the entry fee, and make some money out of it. If you go out and start and park and be the 40th place car, you're going to make more taking that same car track to track, doing the old Joe Nemechek version. And making enough to survive. I mean, you look, Joe, Joe Nemechek started in park for how many years so he could afford to build John Hunter's truck team? I don't see why the 39th and 40th empty spots happened at Martinsville when it was that close. But we're going to have 40 cars at Texas. We had 39 cars on the West Coast swing. I don't know why we didn't have 40 cars at Martinsville. So, yeah, 36 cars get charters. They're locked in. But if there's not 40 cars to fill the field and you have to worry about going home, I don't see the need to buy another charter. That's a fair point. And I'll tell you something quick before I get back on the topic here, I think off topic. You have to wonder how FS1 with um, that race being on FS1 and Fox knowing they're not getting as much money as far as commercials are concerned, if that affects the personal at a place like Martinsville Speedway. I don't know. We'll have to, you know, I don't know if NASCAR would ever, somebody would ever answer that, ask that question in NASCAR, if that question is legit or not, or if it's one, you know, set a, a percentage of the uh, TV deal. But you know, if that race is on FS1, I think NAS, the Fox people know they're not going to get as much money as far as advertising they're concerned. So they might not put out as much money for Martinsville. That could be part of the reason. And those back-end teams don't – the open teams don't get nearly as much money as the charter teams. The chartering teams, and it says in the article here, that um, a charter is a based on historical performance for more successful teams. So basically, uh, if you finish like third in points with your charter, you get more money than the person who finished fourth in points the year before. And it might be $1,000 a race or something like that, but it adds up at the end. Um, and it adds up, and it's over a three-year period. So over a three-year period, a charter might be worth five thousand dollars more if finished five spots higher than it, you know than the other charter. So, um, but I thought it was interesting because you have to wonder as far as front or motorsports is concerned, if they looked at the charter, EK Racing as sort of an asset that they could sell higher. Uh, did they maybe see a team that wanted to expand? You know, as far you know, like we said. They got their charter from BK Racing for $2 million, and, the, and NASCAR officials said that, you know, they could reach as high as $8 million for a big team. Where if you sold, yeah, you rented it out this year and got however much money you got for leasing the charter out, and then you said that Front Row Motorsports said, hey, we're going to sell it, and we're going to make $6 million off of it. That would be a smart business move by Bob Jenkins and those guys. Do you see a big team ex- expanding, John? Because maybe um, uh, a team like, you know, the, 40, the 37 car, 
might need a charter next year because they're releasing one from Roush. What are your thoughts on that, Quick? If there's any, if the black helicopter folks are right, Roger Penske could need a charter next year because the black helicopter people are saying Carl Edwards and Dave Rogers are going to Penske and doing a third car over there. Um, Again, I don't see it happening, but that's what the black helicopter people think. I, again, it's one of those ones where until it all gets sorted out, I mean, they're in their second year of this. And one of the things that surprised me by reading through the article was Front Row Motorsports quietly left the race team alliance and they were replaced by Levine Family Racing. But is there no joy in Mudville that somebody you've already had one team leave the Alliance. And there, I mean, I didn't know there was a cap on how many teams could be in the race team Alliance. Yeah, I know. Me neither. I'm with you, John. It was very confusing as far as, um, that's concerned. You know, I know there's a, there's a certain amount of drivers that can be in the driver council, but teams, you know, and now they're down an extra car because front motorsports has two teams, possibly a third next year in, Levine family moved into their spot, and they only got a one-car operation. But what does that mean for a team like Front Row Motorsports? Who knows? Because Furniture Row is out. They're out of the charter. Same thing with or out of the racing lines. Same thing with the Wood Brothers. Um, and now Front Row Motorsports is out. I'm not really sure what that means. You know, they got the charters. They're in good space, shape. That there's nothing that the racing alliance can do to these teams. That you know, they can't hold it under their head and force them to get into the race team alliance. So I'm not really sure what that means as far as the future of Front Row Motorsports. I think Front Row Motorsports is fine. Bob Jenkins seems like a very committed owner. Same thing with Barney Visser at at uh, Furniture Row. And we know the Wood Brothers are, are committed. They've been in them forever. Um, I'm not sure what that means. But it is something, I think, of note to t- keep an eye on, see if more teams do it. Uh, you know, and, and maybe they're, they're just something that, you know, I think the excuse for Front Row Motorsports was that they uh, just said that it was a sort of a personal reason or something like that. They had personal reasons why they got out of there. Who knows? But uh, something definitely that was definitely interesting, John. I read that at the end of the thing too, because again, I don't know what that means. Real quick, Roger Penske talked about chartering system, and he basically said that the only good thing about a charter is you're locked into the field. And like you said, if there's 40 cars coming to the, if there's only 38 cars coming to the racetrack every weekend, what's the point of having one? Exactly. I mean, the original 36 teams didn't have to buy their charters; they just got them. Mm-hmm. Right, they're handed their charters, so. That's what's interesting. John, this weekend, Texas Motor Speedway, O'Reilly Auto Parts 500 uh, from Texas. New configuration, new pavement. Um, they took a, took a little bit of banking away. It's supposed to be more like what they say is more similar to what Kentucky is. Uh, Texas Motor Speedway used to be one of the fastest tracks in NASCAR. Now I think that speed will be taken down because of the lack of banking in the corners. What do you think we're going to see this weekend at Texas? I think it's going to be really interesting because nobody has any notes. The only driver who has taken a lap on that track is Chris Busher in a pace car. So there's absolutely no notebook going into that. You're going to have to – you can't even simulate it because the pavement wasn't even done and nobody's been able to go on it to give you a simulation program. So it's going to be one of those ones where you have to hope that you click on it right. Uh, one of the things I was listening to um, Moody this week, and he had Ray Evernham on, and he asked Ray, we said the product and different things with what's going on at Hendrick Motorsports, and Ray said they took so much out of the hands of the crew chiefs on race day. 
if you don't have your stuff coming out of the truck good, there isn't too much you can do. The track bar, the driver can mess with it. So there's only so much you can do with the track bar. You can put a little wedge in and air pressure. Other than that, you're pretty much locked into the box unless you go down. If you go too far down on the shocks and the bump stops and it ends up hitting the pavement, there's not a lot to help the racing from the crew chief's angle. So, I mean, with Texas, new pavement, it's going to be fast. Don't know if there's going to be a second groove. It might be a follow the leader, really boring mile and a half, or it could turn into um, really good racing because one of the things they did when they reconfigured Homestead Miami, it was great from the day they redid it. So we'll see what happens. Right. I mean, it could be a it could be a snoozer or it could be a great race. Yeah, you're right, and it's going to throw a curveball, no doubt about it. And I think that was an interesting point by Abraham because I, I agree with him. I think. It just seems like if you're not good off the truck, there's really not a whole lot you can do. And I wish they would open up the rule book. And but that makes it interesting. This is a guy, Everingham, who uh, I think is very credible as far as he knows the setup of race cars. He knows what NASCAR does to these race cars. He knows everything as far as that's concerned because he's such a smart guy, um, former car owner, great crew chief, championship winning crew chief. So if that's the case. You know, you got to wonder basically who hits the setup here at Texas Motor Speedway. You're right. The teams don't have any notes. The simulations are probably going to be a little bit off. Is that something that plays into a little team's hands a little bit more? A team like Frontline Motorsports, a team like maybe uh, Richard Petty Motorsports, where these bigger teams have all the notes, have all the technology to sort of outspend these guys, not really going to matter at Texas Motor Speedway as much, you would think, because they don't have the notes to build off. They don't even have anything. They don't have, you know, yeah, they could probably look at it now and take a, you know, fly over it and, and take their best guess at it, but that's what it is. And I think that's something that, you know, um, I think is good in a way because it takes a lot of the technology out of it and it'll just make it sort of a crew chief using his brain a little bit. I think this is one of those tracks, the way it's set up, it's set up for a Jimmy Johnson or a Kevin Harvick or a Brad Keselowski or a Martin Truex Jr., because those four crew chiefs are four of the smartest guys you've seen in the game. Mm -hmm. They find ways, no matter what they're running into, they find ways to get it done. It's also a Kyle Busch type race because usually anytime they change cars or anytime somebody repaves or does something different, Kyle Busch is at the front because he can drive anything in almost any condition. So I think it's going to be a battle between the smartest crew chiefs and the best drivers. Yeah, and that's what you like to see on Sunday. And I'm interested to see, as far as Kyle Larson, obviously Martinsville's a, a sort of the outlier, but the first five races of the year, he was on top of his game. Yeah, he got the win, and which is what he needed, but can he continue the momentum at Texas? Can McMurray and Chip Ganassi Racing keep their momentum going at Texas? Can they keep it going the rest of the year? Uh, will we see a team figure it out? Hendrick Motorsports sort of figure it out this weekend. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see this weekend at Texas Motor Speedway. I want to thank John Harlow from SpeedwayMedia.com. Joining me every week, he does a great job. I want to thank you fans for listening. We'll see you next weekend on Talking Circles. Good night, everybody.